Please turn with me in the Word of God to Matthew uh, chapter uh, 4. I thank Pastor Derek for that kind introduction, and I'm thrilled to be with you uh, this morning. I'm actually going to be reading from verse 12 of chapter 4 through verse 3 of chapter 5. This is God's holy and inspired word. Please give it your full attention. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun in Naphtali. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread among all Syria. They brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. May God bless uh, the reading of his word. Well, uh, I was so glad to, to hear and to see in your uh, uh, bulletin that you are studying Jay Gresson Machen's uh, great book, Christianity and Liberalism, and you're not alone. Uh, throughout the Orthodox Presbyterian Church uh, this year, so many congregations are marking the anniversary of, of that book because it's so foundational uh, to who we are and what we still believe as Bible-believing, Reformed Presbyterians. Now, one helpful way to think of uh, Christianity and liberalism is to put it in a larger context of what occurred with Martin Luther and the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century. During the 16th century, the Roman Catholic Church had gone corrupt. It was no longer uh, holding to the biblical doctrine of justification by faith alone. The Roman Catholic Church was teaching that justification was not the work of God alone, but rather the work of God and men together. And Luther objected. And he nailed 95 theses upon the cathedral door in Wittenberg. And that started, by the grace of God, that started the Protestant Reformation. Well, now you have to move 400 years later. 
And 400 years later, tragically, now within Protestantism, the Presbyterian Church had gone corrupt. Now, it was no longer the issue of justification, although that was involved. But now it was seemingly, if possible, even bigger issues, particularly who was Jesus? Um, There were those in the Presbyterian Church that were maintaining that Jesus was no more than a mere good teacher, an example for us to follow a good man, someone for us to pattern our life after. Um, In the midst of this, and of all that follows from such declarations, uh, because you can go so many different ways from that, whether it's denying the, the supernatural nature of Christianity in the Bible, or denying doctrines uh, like the virgin birth or the resurrection from the dead. In the midst of that, uh, the Lord raised up J. Gresson Machen to take a stand and to say, that isn't Christianity. Just as the reformers 400 years earlier had said, that's not the gospel, Machen was raised up and, uh, to take a stand in regard to who is Jesus what is the faith? What is Christianity? Because Machen believed that the Bible is clear that Jesus is no mere man. Jesus is God come in the flesh. He is fully man, but he's also fully God. He's the only mediator as we have confessed together today between God and man. Jesus is that one upon whom our hope rests. And Machen articulated this Uh, in his great book, Christianity and Liberalism. Well, uh, when Machen wrote the book, the Presbyterian Church in the USA was riding very high. It could not be uh, riding much higher in culture. For the last 40 years, it had practically been at the forefront of American culture. And you can see that by just looking at the presidency of the United States. And so I don't know if you've uh, ever thought of it in this way. But in regard to our presidents, Grover Cleveland was the son of a Presbyterian minister and a lifelong Presbyterian. Benjamin Harrison was a ruling elder in the Presbyterian Church. Teddy Roosevelt was baptized in the Presbyterian Church, grew up in the Presbyterian Church, and the only reason he didn't remain in the Presbyterian Church is that he joined the Reformed Church in America, the RCA. Woodrow Wilson was not only the son of a Presbyterian minister, he was a ruling elder in the Presbyterian Church. Presbyterianisms were riding high in government. They were riding high uh, in American business. Uh, uh, Wanamaker in Philadelphia was a Presbyterian ruling elder. If you want to go to Pittsburgh, Carnegie has had Presbyterian roots. Presbyterianism was riding high. And the last thing they wanted was anyone causing any trouble 
like this guy, nature. You know, we don't want to hear it. Uh, we might agree with you on doctrine, but we don't want the peace of the church to be disturbed. And uh, Machen said, look, you can go down this path, but understand this isn't Christianity. <laughs> this is not something that you can tolerate. It is just is not Christianity. It's another religion altogether. Because if Jesus is not the Son of God come in the flesh, who died on the cross and rose again for our justification, then we have no hope. Well, in the Reformation with Martin Luther, um, part of the issue was you had the doctrinal uh, crisis. How do you solve it? And part of the Reformation was the Protestants said, you only solve it by Scripture, sola scriptura. Why the Roman Catholic Church said, you solve it by the magisterium. You solve it by the clergy, the church. Well, what do you do when you're Protestants and you are seemingly holding to the Word of God as the only arbiter of, of faith and practice? Well, there was one place in the Bible, one of the few places, where confessional Presbyterians and liberals um, agreed. And that was looking at the very text that we have read this morning from Matthew chapter 4. What they agreed on was the fact that this is where you find the start of Christianity in the Bible. This is where you find the start of Jesus' public ministry. This is where you start to, to answer those questions who is Jesus and what is Christianity? Now that's a broad agreement because uh, when looking at this text, the conclusion that J. Gresson Machen and others came to and the liberals came to could not be any further apart. And that's what I'd like for us uh, this morning is to look in at this text to see what the Word of God says about who is Jesus and what is the faith and what is Christianity and what it means to us now, a hundred years after Christianity and liberalism uh, was published and 500 years after the Protestant Reformation. Now, just a little uh, a placing of this passage in the context of Matthew's Gospel. So Matthew's Gospel um, divides up into three main parts. Now, you can uh, see in uh, what we've read, chapter 4, verse 17, we see at the start of that verse, there's that little phrase, from that time. That's a marker in Matthew's Gospel. And it occurs again in chapter 16, verse 21, from that time. So that is uh, the marker that Matthew uses to divide his uh, gospel into three main parts. So the first part, from the opening of, of chapter 1 until Matthew uh, 4, uh, 6, uh, 16, it's about who Jesus is. 
That's what we're finding out there. Um, is that he is the one who was born of the virgin. He is the one who, who has come to save his people from their sins. He is the one who was spoken of by the prophets. Uh, he is the Messiah. That is who Jesus is. You get to chapter 4, verse 17, and then we see this transition. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So now you have, in the middle of this gospel, Jesus' public ministry. This is what he's going to proclaim. This is uh, the good news concerning the kingdom. That is what takes place in the middle of Matthew's gospel. But then we get uh, to uh, Matthew uh, chapter 16, and we get to, to verse 21, and we see that marker from this time. And then we begin to find out from that point to the end of the, of the chapter what he does, his passion. He's going to go to the cross to die for our sins. He'll be resurrected from the dead. That is what we see in Matthew's gospel. So that is how to think of Matthew's gospel uh, in regard to its beginning, its middle, and its end. Who Jesus is, uh, his public ministry, the proclamation, and then what he does. So I have actually read to you the part that's in between the ending of the first main section and the start of the second main section. And uh, we have also read earlier uh, the uh, passage in Isaiah chapter 9. So here is uh, Matthew, and he's finishing up that section where he wants to really bring home who Jesus is. Um, he is the one, in this case, promised uh, to come by the prophet Isaiah, the one preaching the kingdom and bringing light to those dwelling in darkness in Galilee of the Gentiles. Now, Capernaum was not a place esteemed by the Jews. Uh, it was about 70 miles north of uh, Jerusalem. Um, it was uh, uh, not esteemed because of the Gentiles who were living around it, and also because it was from the center of the culture. Um, in other words, this was a people deemed backwards, a people that probably were dismissed from national life because of their seeming insignificance. Um, and yet, this is who Jesus goes to first. And, uh, and it's... Uh, Wonderful, because uh, the light is now shining in the darkness because Jesus has come. Now, um, I don't know if you do this, but I would recommend that you do this. If you, first of all, I recommend that you read your Bible daily. But when you come to a New Testament passage and you see a um, Old Testament passage being quoted, what you should do is get out another Bible. And to take a look at actually what it says in the Old Testament, and then to see how the New Testament author, under the inspiration of the Spirit, is quoting that passage. And so I'm not going to reread the, the passage from Isaiah for you, but what we find out when you do that, if you do that and you sit them out in front of you, you'll find that he, uh, Matthew has left something out. He hasn't given the full citation. 
Um, he doesn't uh, include in the latter times the Lord has made the way glorious. Now that's quite a statement in Isaiah 9. And you would think of all the things there that he might include or not include, why would you not include that glorious statement? Well, because he wants you to know in wrapping up this first section about who Jesus is, that he is the one who's bringing this to fulfillment. There is no other than Jesus. He's the one who makes the way glorious. He wants you to know that is happening here. That's what's taking place. Now, in going back to where we started, you don't say that about a nice person, a good man, a really great teacher. You only say that about the king. You only say that about the one uh, who is the royal messiah. That's what's taking place here. His coming is that glorious. He is the one who changes history. This is the one who's the pivot of history, the pivot of human existence, and he has come. That's what Matthew is declaring here. That's the stupendous act that has occurred. And now we see Jesus in verse 17. Now we see him beginning to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, we might not think of the difference because uh, of, uh, of familiarity, but there is a difference between preaching and teaching. And so when you preach, it, technically it's the announcement of something. Preaching is the announcement of something. Teaching is detailed instruction then about what is announced. So we see in our passage then, verse 17, the content of the preaching is the kingdom of heaven. And then we'll see in verse 23 that that teaching is expanded uh, in regard to the kingdom of heaven. And, uh, and what we're to see here in this passage then, this is this, is this great message, is that um, Jesus, in announcing this uh, uh, kingdom is at hand, is also announcing that of repentance. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Um, I don't want to make this a three-hour sermon. But part of what was going on with J. Gresson Machen writing Christianity and liberalism is that people believed that they were plenty good enough to do what they needed to do to be saved and merit <coughs> eternal life in heaven. And here is Jesus in his opening declaration of his public ministry. Opening declaration. And his first word is repent which is that you're not good enough to merit entrance into the kingdom of heaven. If you're going to enter into the kingdom of heaven, it must be by the work of God on your behalf. 
And that is what has happened with the coming of Jesus. He is the one who brings the good news because he is the one who does what we cannot do for ourselves. And so here's Jesus then coming, announcing the coming of the kingdom, calling men to repentance. And yet also then we see that he's the sovereign king and he is going to bring about salvation for his people. And so we see this then in the, in, in the power of his word. He calls these brothers, and it's not some just meek and mild calling. What's in view here is conversion. Follow me, he declares, and hearts are changed. They follow him. Um, it's a change of heart. It's a change of, of conversion. Into, and, and he is the one who declares to them that he will make them fishers of men. And the Spirit working in their hearts, they immediately drop their nets and follow after Jesus. And then he calls another set of brothers and, and then they follow after him. And then we're told in verse 23, he went through all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. And so... How do we know that the kingdom is here? Well, we see here that he is the one that Satan cannot stop. Uh, he is the one who is drawing uh, his own to himself. He is the one who the good news is going forth and he is building his kingdom. Now, um, just a word here in understanding as we see the inbreaking of the kingdom here. One of the great gospel truths that we see in the New Testament, which is forecast in the Old Testament, is that Satan is bound. When Jesus comes, Satan is bound. Now, people get very confused about this. This does not mean that, that Satan isn't active in this world. He is a, like a, a prowling lion. He is active. But he is bound. What scripture means when he is bound is that he's utterly helpless in regard to the word of God going forth to every nation and tribe and tongue and the Lord drawing his own to himself. See, before Jesus Christ comes, there's only one nation on earth that has the gospel. Have you ever realized this? It's only Israel. One tiny place on the entire globe has the gospel. Jesus Christ has come in the fulfillment of prophecy and now the gospel goes out into the entire world. It's like Acts chapter 1 verse 8. It's going out uh, from Jerusalem through Samaria to the ends of the earth. That's because Satan is bound. He cannot stop the spread of the gospel. And we should take great Great encouragement in that. And so what you see here in, these, these, in this wonderful shorthand here is that those who are, are uh, uh, captive to Satan, they're being released from that tyranny. Uh, they are being healed. The power, the inbreaking of the kingdom is taking place. And there are those who are following after Jesus. So again... How much clearer could this text be about who Jesus is? He's not just some mere good, nice 
man. He is the Savior, the living God, come to set his people free. Now, who, what you believe concerning Jesus will have a great uh, impact upon what you believe Christianity is. So for liberalism then and now, if Jesus is just this example for us to follow, then Christianity becomes what you do. It's primarily what you do. But if you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God in whom the hope of forgiveness of sins is solely found, then Christianity is one of repentance and faith in that Jesus first, and then following after him. I, I said earlier uh, in regard to Woodrow Wilson, Woodrow Wilson was a ruling elder in the Presbyterian Church, but Woodrow Wilson was utterly liberal in his theology. It was not just his politics, it was his theology. So what was Woodrow Wilson's great plan after, uh, at the conclusion of World War I? It was called the League of Nations. And when Woodrow Wilson put forth the League of Nations, he openly, and this is somewhat shocking to our ears, he openly talked about this being the way in which you can Christianize the world that you can bring the entire world to faith in Jesus Christ. I know that's shocking, in that a politician would actually say, say that. Uh, and, and in many ways, you know, we should uh, uh, be comforted by someone saying that. But here's the issue, and this is why J. Gresson Machen thought the League of Nations was a horrible idea. When Woodrow Wilson was saying that, he couldn't care less if anyone repented of sin. He couldn't care less about the preached word of Jesus Christ going to the cross or uh, rising again from the dead for one sin. What Woodrow Wilson had in mind, let's all be good people, help others in need, lift them out of their poverty, do these things, and the kingdom of God will come on earth. You do not need Jesus Christ going to the cross for that sort of kingdom. But for we who are sinners, for we who know that we cannot save ourselves, we're utterly dependent upon Jesus Christ going to the cross. Thirteen years later, what we now know as the Orthodox Presbyterian Church was started. Who in their right mind starts a church in the Depression? Who in their right mind starts a church in the Depression where you are told if you do this, you lose your building. You would lose your building, you would lose your man's you would lose every dollar you had in your savings account for Grace Church. Why would you ever start a church in that situation? Only if you believe that you are a sinner who has no hope apart from Jesus Christ dying on the cross for your sins. Unless you believe he is the Savior alone, that he is God come in the flesh, that his death and resurrection truly is the pivot of history. And so, a text like this, it should encourage us in the faith. But I didn't stop there. I didn't stop there, because I want us to go forward to chapter 5, where we see that Jesus, seeing the crowds, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
just as we see what the kingdom has, has come with Jesus and we're called to repentance and we see his great work, so we see here that uh, we can never be those who uh, are proud or arrogant or look down to others. Machen said that, uh, and this is what he wanted for the church, he said Christianity is the fellowship of the brokenhearted. The fellowship of the brokenhearted. Those who know that they cannot save themselves, those who know their own sin, those who come to an end of themselves, there's a brokenheartedness and a humility about the faith. You see, we can't just say to liberals or to the world around us who hates Jesus, oh, you know, you should have known better or anything like that. We're saved by the grace of God. We didn't love God. He loved us. We didn't choose him. He chose us. We should be marked by humility and a brokenheartedness. We should know that uh, we're the poor in spirit. And we should know that everything that we have is by the grace of God. So what defines us as, uh, as the, a remnant, an outcast in the 21st century? Um, standing by the word of God, knowing if we give up who Jesus is and what he has done, we don't have the faith. But yet as we take that stand, being humble, being servants, praying for one another, not lording it over one another, being those who show that we are going the opposite way of the world. You know, the world says, if you do this, if you do this, you'll just get run over. If you do this, uh, you know, you're, just, you're not going to be uh, effective. You, gotta, you have to, it's, 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 uh, everyone you know, should stand up and get what they can get in this life. No, we go the other direction because we know personally that there's nothing more powerful than this life than the cross of Jesus Christ. Is it not the cross that brought us to our knees? And is it the cross why we're here today? Because Jesus did this for us and we believe with our whole heart his word working in our hearts and his spirit that we follow after him. So my prayer for you here is to embrace God's word, to embrace Jesus Christ as your only Savior and Lord, and to humbly to walk after him in faith and obedience. And I say to you, if you do that, you'll be a powerful witness in this community. You have the opportunity to talk to others because it's only with a changed heart that you can live this way. But I can also say to you in closing, this is what you're meant to do. This is where the meaning of your life is found. I don't know if, if, if you think about these things, but when you look back, um, I just had a birthday yesterday. I'm getting very old. Uh, so I have one more year before I turn 60. And that's really you know, one of those markers where you start to think about things. Uh, but, um, but what are the things 
that really you look back and what are the things that are dearest to your heart? Is it not when you're following after Christ and you give yourself to him and to others and you see how someone else is benefited by that? You know, so often, particularly in our youth, uh, we think about uh, the great achievements that we might have or something like that. But I think that uh, when we see others being lifted up and seeing them being brought uh, uh, to Christ and being uh, encouraged by that, that really stands at the center of our lives. And again, um, this is what we're called to do, and we can do it because we're joined to Jesus. And by his word and spirit, we can follow after him in faith and obedience. And we can have the full assurance that he is building his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So that's my encouragement to you this morning from the word of God.